Hello, everyone. Welcome to Measuring the Score podcast, the podcast where we offer our opinions on film scores and the films they're inspired by. I'm Chris. And I'm Leslie. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to episode four of Measuring the Score. I'm Chris Lott. And I'm Leslie Lott. As always. Today we are going to be talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. But before we begin, Leslie, have you been listening to anything other than this score here? Uh, I listened to the Wonder Woman 1984 score that you were playing earlier today if yeah, that counts was, yeah that, that could count it was uh it, it wasn't the actual soundtrack itself it was sketches from the soundtrack now i haven't finished the uh soundtrack yet but everything that i'm hearing is so much better than what was in the film oh i agree well i and like like you were talking about like the main theme it was um the uh theme for cheetah uh, the track is called Apex Predator, and it was like a play on the Wonder Woman theme, but it sounded so much better. Yeah, I was unimpressed by the score in the movie when we watched it. Um, uh, you know, I have high respect for Zimmer. Yeah, Hans Zimmer. Zimmer. I almost called him Zimmerman. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, I have great respect for Hans Zimmer, um, but... I was not impressed by the score at all when I watched the movie. No, it was very bland, generic, and not like Zimmer. Exactly. But the whole movie was not the best either, in my opinion, in the world. So Maybe we'll cover that one day. Maybe, but not this episode. No. This episode, we're going to be talking about The Good, The Bad, Ugly. Released in 1966, it was a story of a bounty hunting scam joins two men in an uneasy alliance against a third in a race to find a fortune in gold buried in a remote cemetery. So, as we've mentioned before, Chris and I have taken turns um, uh, selecting uh, scores for our podcast, and I selected this one in honor of my father. This is one of his favorite movies, um, and he loves old westerns and old western scores. So, um, I I picked this uh, for him and on his behalf, and I learned today that Chris's brother also likes this movie so it will be we will tribute to both my father and chris's uh brother when we uh go over this so thank you guys for your inspiration um so as chris just mentioned the score was released in 1966 along with the movie um the main theme itself for the movie was a hit in 1968 and the soundtrack album was number 4 on the Billboard album chart and number 10 on the Black album chart. Wow, I didn't know that one. Yeah, so um it was very popular. I remember dad even saying he had it on record. Um but he also had the Magnificent 7 on record and a lot of the other westerns. So um so when I saw that statistic, I'm like, "Oh yeah, you know dad said he had this when he was Young, so it made sense. The score was composed by Ennio Morricone, who had scored a, a lot of films up until the, uh, you know, before this, including which we did not know until the, we started watching the film yesterday that this was the third film in the Dollars series. Uh, started with A Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, and then The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, I remember dad watching A Fistful of Dollars a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, my Jason, too. He, he, 
Jason was more of the Western guy. I was not. I Every time there was like Pell Rider, Hang Em High, usually the Clint Eastwood Western films, including The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, if it, you know, if it's full of dollars, would come on. Jason would love them. He would watch them. Me, not so much. <laughs> I, well, I always watch them with Dad. You know, Dad and I would sit down and watch all of the black and white films that he liked. So um, I would watch all of the, the old uh, movies with him. And, of course, that included John Wayne because John Wayne was Dad's favorite uh, Western actor. So I watched a whole bunch of John Wayne movies. And then, you know, I got accustomed to seeing John Wayne in Westerns until, you know, Dad started watching some of John Wayne's war movies. And uh, I'm like, John Wayne in a war movie. And then when John Wayne played Genghis Khan, I was just like, no, something wrong with this. I can't imagine John Wayne as Genghis Khan. So, yeah, me either. Um, but I do remember watching the Dollar series with Dad. And uh, so when I found out that this was part of that, I'm like, yeah, it kind of makes sense, you know. Right. It makes sense to me. Um, so this movie was credited with uh, catapulting uh, Eastwood into stardom. Uh, you know, he's been an actor before before this movie, but this one here was supposedly the one that just pushed him, into, you know, to the top. And um, the working title of the movie while it was filming was The Two Magnificent Tramps. <laughs> yeah, that does not fit the film at all. Well, they kind of are tramp-like. Well, yeah, I can understand that. and, and That sounds like a 60s thing, though, yeah. to me. Yeah. Now, that was one thing about the score, because, you know, like I just said, I was not a big Western uh, fan. I didn't really start liking Westerns until... I watched, it was much later when I saw the 310 to Yuma remake with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale. I know, she's shaking her head at me. I know, I know, I know. I'm sad. I'm sad. Well, I'm sorry. It was not really my cup of tea. I, I didn't really get into them until much later in life. And when I sat down to watch this film here, I was, especially when I was listening to the score, I was really like, wow, okay, I missed... This is a masterpiece. So, I have missed so much. <laughs> well, this is considered to be one of the greatest and most original film scores in history. Right. Um, and when we start talking about the score, it's just, it's amazing. It really is. The score is wonderful. Yeah, that's one of, that's the first note I have on here. The score is amazing. Because it is. I mean, when I started listening to it, coming from someone who's never really listened to the score, except for hearing the main theme so many times over the years. I mean, because first off, the the theme is iconic. It, the, as soon as it starts up, Everybody again. Everybody yeah. yeah. That's a good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, he's, oh, that's, you know, the first thing you think of is Clint Eastwood, you know, with a gun. And, and it really is. It it The score, there's a lot of experimentation going on. And it, there are still a lot of things in the score that you don't hear nowadays. Well, you know, the score was composed prior to them filming the movie. So what they did was they, um, Leon and uh, Marconi sat down and uh, started working on the score before he started filming the, the movie. And then after the score was completed, he started to film the movie by playing the score in the background as he was playing the scene. So the movie was actually orchestrated around the score. And see, to me, that, that is amazing because something like that nowadays is, is almost unheard of. But that's how he did it. 
Um, he was also very meticulous about things, and I'm talking about Leone. Uh, you know, he was known for his long shots and his up close shots, uh, and he he was he was known for being meticulous with his film style, which used to drive Clint Eastwood crazy, from what I read earlier. And uh, Eastwood, uh, this was the last movie that Eastwood decided to uh, work with uh, him on. Uh, after this movie, they parted ways. Well, I, and I can understand that because um, there is a, I remember there was another story, I want to say uh, Scatman Carruthers, who worked on The Shining. Stanley Kubrick was also a, a person who would also, you know, make actors exhausted with several takes, you know, and it's very famously known that he drove Shelley Duvall crazy on the set of The Shining. So when Scatman started working with Clint Eastwood on a film, directly after that, I believe Eastwood was directing, I do not remember the name of the movie, but... Eastwood was like a one-take person, probably because of this right here. Scatman Carruthers broke down crying, saying thank you. <laughs> yeah, he probably got fed up. He's like, oh, I've worked with types like you before. <laughs> I know what he wants. <laughs> he wants one take. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give him one take. Now, one of the things about the score that I I, I have to say, I, I like I said, it, it was amazing, but the... The one that really stuck out to me at first was the desert track. I, I when it started up, it was just the way it was going about. I was I was just completely immersed in the score piece. You know, the whole score to me, from start to finish, was just so wonderful. Um, I got goosebumps several times. You know, just listening to a few pieces in there, and we'll get to the ecstasy of gold here. Uh, yeah, one of the more famous tracks. Famous tracks, but one of our favorite pieces of the score. Um, but I, I love, I loved the whole thing. There was, I did not have one critique against it. I just, I absolutely loved the whole score, and I loved the, how he put it together. You had the Spanish sound to it, because this, you know, this movie was during the Civil War. You had a Civil War element, so you had. The drums, the snare drums, which unlike during the Chucky episode we did, <laughs> these are not poorly placed. <laughs> these snare drums actually made sense. All right, all right, quit crepping on the child play. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that I, I really like the use of percussion. I like the use of vocals. I like the use of guitar because there were some instances where it sounded like he used guitar. Um, he just he, he put all of this music together and just made a masterpiece. It really did. And, and there was, you know, you said, you know, guitar, there was acoustic guitar, electric guitar. It was so many different elements. And the fact that he gave each character their own instrument, their own theme, like a flute for Blondie, which is Clint Eastwood's character, uh, Ocarina for Angel Eyes, which is the bad, and also human voices for Tuco, almost like a coyote sound. I thought that was amazing that he went above and beyond to make sure that this film had its own feel its own voice and it really does because it, it it really drives home the whole feeling of the three different characters and you can hear that listening to the score on its own and it's it was, you know as we talked before about an intellectually done score um this was very intellectually done because he did that he he took the characteristics of these characters or what he envisioned because remember this was done before they filmed the movie Right, and that that, that right was the there, amazing part. that is a completely amazing. I do not know as a composer if I could do that. I mean, I, I might could, but maybe not to that level because every single score piece 
sounded amazing, and watching against the film, it works. But you know, Leon, as I said, was very meticulous in what he did. So he was probably really meticulous during this part as well, because in his mind, he knew what he wanted. So working one-on-one, I would think with, you know, Marcone, uh, would have, um, would have, you know, uh, uh, placed uh, sounds where he visualized it before, you know, before making the movie. See right that right there that that is a level of trust between the director and the composer, which is you know it it does happen a lot, but it's also rare that it's that close that it's that focused that they're so in sync with each other that it works so well the way it does. Now, when the score starts up and you know you get the the you know iconic theme. There's a lot of um, almost chanting in there. At first, when I hear it, I couldn't realize what the lyrics were, but it, I found out like it's "Go, Go, Migo," <laughs> and when I found that out, that's that's basically Tuco's theme, saying you know "Go, Go, Amigo," because "Migo" is probably there, you know there's a lot of speculation that "Migo" is short for "Amigo." I thought that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, well, that's all he did through the movie. It seemed like. Just oh yeah, go, and, go. yeah. <laughs> when he fell down, he got back up and went. Some more. <laughs> and now one of the things you said, you listening to the score, you didn't have any any problems with it. I did. There was a couple of tracks in there that I'm sorry. Just listening to it on its own, I, I couldn't get into it. it you got to understand, though, the music of the time. Well, right. And it, it's the 60s. I understand. I, I completely, did a lot of experimentation. Right. And we talked about that. But the thing is, there was a couple of tracks in there. For one of them, it was... The, the story of a soldier and starts off with the very low, somber sounding horns. And then you get the civil war elements coming into the background. I get the symbolism. I understand why they're there, but at the same time, it's very distracting listening to it on its own. So in the score itself, we're going to talk about the uh, death of the soldier. Um, the, in the score itself, it just played the music. I went back and listened to it a second time. Uh, in the movie, they actually had a scene where they were singing. And I'm going to read the lyrics to you from their singing. It's a poem. And it is very, very um, somber. It's real, but it will make you understand the piece a little bit better. It goes, bugles are calling from prairie to shore. Sign up and fall in and march off to war. Blue grass and cotton burnt and forgotten. All hope seems gone, so soldiers march on to die. Bugles are calling from prairie to shore, sign up and fall in, and march off to war. There in the distance, a flag I can see, scorched in ribbons, but whose can it be? How ends the story, who is the glory? Ask if we dare, our comrades out there who sleep. That's awesome. Very, very somber. Yeah. So... That's why you heard the Civil War elements, because they were reflecting. Right. And, you know, we can, we'll talk about it when we talk about the movie, about the scene itself. But just reading the lyrics, the lyrics itself were, they were powerful. Like, you know, very much like Civil War poetry uh, that was written during the war. And again, that goes to the testament of Morricone, how much of a genius this man really is. And I mean, it, it just goes to show you, again, the level of work that he put into the score, 
before, I mean, he didn't even get to see it. That is amazing. It's masterful. It really is. Could you do that? Could you write a Could you write a score without seeing the? Uh, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, you, you are definitely putting me on the spot right now. <laughs> could you do that? Could well, you, do that? you know, um, if it was just me and you talking, I'd probably go no. But since I've got listeners, <laughs> no, 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 just no, be truthful. no. I, if I had time, you know, and uh, it was a director that I was working with very closely, and. Yeah, maybe. Because I know you're a very visual person, and I know that when they send you the film, and you look, you you request it without music if possible, because you don't want to spoil what you want to create. As right. in, have a an idea of you know, outside of your creative box. Uh, I would like to call it, I like to call it the creative box. Uh, but you watch it in silence. I do. And then then you start adding the score to it. I've seen you do that more than once. Um, but in this instance, you wouldn't have a visual. Maybe you'd have a storyboard in front of you, or you have the script in front of you. Well, if I had the script, the storyboard, and the director steadily telling me how, you know, the, the visuals of it, yeah, I probably could. But again, this is 1966. I mean, things like that don't really happen that often but uh, apparently they don't happen now either <laughs> no i mean well a, a lot of composers are more visual based than anything and you, you don't hear a lot of stories where composers are doing it now some instances where composers will create music for certain scenes beforehand which uh one that i'm thinking of tyler bates with the guardians of the galaxy the first film he had to score a lot of the film without seeing it so it does still happen but that was only a few scenes, not the entire film, and the film was not based around the score. Yeah, I thought that was impressive where they said that he would play it while he was filming. So, uh, you know, the actors are <laughs> probably hearing it in the background. I can imagine, you know, he gets his little, well, I don't know if there weren't boom boxes. It would, you know, <laughs> he gets a little <laughs> tape deck out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, let's listen. <laughs> Hit the play button. <laughs> Everybody shut up. We're playing the score. <laughs> this is what we've got to film around. <laughs> <laughs> and go. <laughs> We're dancing. We're well, dancing. <laughs> about the only other film that's more modern that has done that is a Baby Driver. But that was filming around, not really score, Music. soundtrack. Yeah, yeah kind of. It, it Baby Driver, which we might do one day, reminds me of American Graffiti. Because yeah. it was done that way. Yeah, it worked. Now, one of the things finding out um, while you know reviewing about this movie, spaghetti the term spaghetti western refers to a Italian director and Italian producer directing a western film starring an American. I never knew that for the longest time. Well, you know, Daddy he 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 would watch all sorts of westerns, and um, I remember him calling with spaghetti westerns as a kid, and I I remember asking why, and you know that's that's what he told me. Um, and I have forgotten over the years that some of the spaghetti westerns were done in English, and some of the lines were not done in English. They were done in their native language and dubbed in English. So watching this movie kind of reminded me of watching the old kung fu movies where the lips don't line up <laughs> with the dialogue. <laughs> well, see, as a kid, when Jason would sit there and watch this movie, I'm sitting there going, I don't understand why is it, you know, why why are their their mouths not lining up with the um the words and everything else and then 
later on in life, I find out <laughs> because it was filmed by an Italian director. Yeah. So, you know, they would do how, you know, those that were on set that spoke English, spoke English. Those were on set that spoke Italian, spoke Italian. And uh, then it was dubbed in. And so, yes. And then sometimes the voices don't line up with what the character, what you think the character should sound like by looking <laughs> at the guy or like, hmm, his voice is a little too deep, you know. Um, but so, yeah, I, I actually took notice of that because I have forgotten. It's been a while since I've seen this movie. So um, sitting there and I'm like, oh. Well, before we get into watching that was the weird. film. weird. <laughs> before we get to into watching the film, one of the, the score tracks that is widely known besides the theme for this film is the ecstasy of gold pretty much the ending track of the film and when when this happened listening to this in the car i i was like wow this is this is amazing i this got is- goosebumps i started listening to ecstasy of gold i you know and i you hear it now on commercials you hear it all over the place and you don't realize that Unless you you know the movie or have listened to the score, that it's actually from this this movie, and um, I just I I got chill bumps. I really did. It had a nice build. It started off soft, but it, and then it started to build nicely, and all of the the you know melody and the and the um, the horns, the horns, the, you know the rhythm, just all melded together all nicely, and I'm just like. I had to listen to it more than once. Oh, I, I did too, and and the reason why I listened to it more than once because it it had this uh, almost Spanish sound with the horns coming in. They're slowly building, and they were building, they were building, they were building. All of a sudden, it got uh, not really quiet. It quieted down to this string section that completely threw me for a loop for a moment. I was like, wait a minute, was this something that was added in later on? No, no, this is in the film. It started off with guitars too, didn't it? It, it did. had a guitar. But the string section made me think of a modern film. I thought it was something modern thrown in there as like a remaster or something. No, this is in the film itself. And I was completely blown away. This was 1960s, you know, 65 probably when they, they filmed this uh, and scored this is what I meant. Uh, and... It was amazing to hear that. Well, you know, he he was ahead of his time. And you can tell through the score that Especially he was with that one ahead of his time. Especially adding the guitars that he added. Completely, completely ahead of his time. I mean, there were so many moments in the score that it was just... Like, I, I do not remember hearing the um, ending piece with the uh, when Tuco was getting, you know, the, the, the hanging at the end. And, um no, no, it's um. I'm sorry, I'm wrong, wrong scene. It it was the scene where they were at the standoff, and you hear the uh, gunshot sound effects. I do not remember hearing that listening to the score itself. I th- because I think it was just subtly done. I think they kind of amped it up when they played the movie. Probably. I remember hearing, um, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm assuming it's a snare. Um, hearing hits that sounded like gunshots or sounded like battle you know um, throughout the movie because you're the movie is you know supposed to be during the civil war it's supposed to be in the west and one of the uh, themes of the movie is uh it's anti-war deconstruction I mean anti-war and then they're doing a deconstruction of old west romanticism you know uh, there's a lot of movies prior to that where you know the old west was uh, romanticized, and right. that's what he was trying to show that it really wasn't romantic time. It was horrible, and so yes, I've yeah. heard those hits, and you can hear that with the score. Yeah, and I, you know, and I heard those hits. 
Uh, I just there. don't remember the the what we heard in the film. Maybe it was a more of a sound design deal. I'm, I don't know. It I, might have been uh, like I was. We were just talking about Death of the Soldier. Um, you know, in the in the score itself, it was just a harmonic and or a harmonica rather, and voices you heard kind of, and then you heard you know the background uh, orchestra play, um, but there was no lyrics, and you didn't hear the lyrics until you watched the movie. That is true because uh, you were you were talking about the lyrics and everything else, and I was trying to find, I was trying to listen to the score itself, and I I did not remember the lyrics until you told them to me just now. Yeah. And now the one thing I gotta say that you know, going back to this this score was ahead of its time. After listening to the score, I started listening to the score to the Stand remake that is on a uh, CBS All Access right now. There was a track on there that was not really a ripoff, but it was more inspired by the Morricone sound. Now, what I mean by that is like the, the percussion in the background was kind of uh, phased out to where it's more background than anything. And then you got the Spanish sounding Western guitar coming in there. And then going from the good and bad and ugly to hearing this track, I'm like, the first thing I thought of, I'm like, this is this is you know Morricone inspired right yeah, here. Yeah, he you know he's to me he's like the grandfather. He he inspired a lot of a lot of music in his day, and he, of course when he passed away, you know the the world lost a, a, a genius. They really did. I, I feel like he was uh, a genius at uh, composition. The, uh, one thing I do, I am say I I do have to say though I am glad that he won an Academy Award. And he won it for The Hateful Eight, which was music from The Thing that was unused that he, uh, Tarantino, used a lot. And then Morricone came in and created some new music based around that music. Again, total genius because he took some music that he had made like years prior coming in and writing something new based around that and then ends up winning an Academy Award for it. I mean... Again, almost unheard of. Genius. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to talk about now we're going to talk about the film itself, the score, how it plays against the film. Again, was not a big Western fan growing up. I saw bits and pieces of the film, so this was really my first time watching the movie, and I've got to say it was amazing. It was amazing. I, I loved how. Um, how each character played against each other and the music was just flowing with, you know, all the story and everything else. And, and you know, you're not really, you can't root for any of these guys because they're all bad. They're all bad. They're all greedy, which is another theme, you know, greed. Greed is the main <laughs> focus of this film. And so my, one of the parts that I really liked is it, at the beginning of the introduction. So when they started introducing the characters, the characters would be in the middle of doing something, and then all of a sudden you would hear their theme. Right. That Marconi, uh, you know, dedicated to them, and then written on the screen, the bad. <laughs> 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 and then it was like, the ugly, you know? <laughs> Which, you know... I, I, to me, it felt like the film focused more on Tuco, which is the ugly. I don't know if you felt that way. I kind of did, but, you know, it's like Tuco and um, Blondie had this, <laughs> they had this weird relationship. It was almost like a love-hate relationship. They tried to kill each other several times throughout the movie. <laughs> 
And yet he almost succeeded with uh, Clint Eastwood's character with the th- with the desert scene. He almost succeeded, but on the flip side, at the end, even though these are bad men and they have killed a lot of people, he still showed mercy at the right. end. Which is why he's the good. So you know, it's, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I feel like it was more centered around both Blondie and um, Tuco, and I can understand why the original name was what it was right. before they changed it. Um, but there seemed like, even though it was centered around those two, there was a little bit more focus, I felt, on Tuco. I, I felt that too. Maybe because this was the third film in Clint Eastwood's character's story, even though he was not technically the same character from the other two films. Maybe. Perhaps. I, I, just a Just a guess. Now... One of the things I was talking about, you know, was not a big fan of the story of the soldier or the death of a soldier. Um, watching it with the film, it worked. The scene, it it the score worked perfectly for that. For that, it was scene. a really somber scene. It was sad, um, which I have in my notes. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it was the scene where Wallace was beating up Tuco because they were trying to find the location of the gold. And the soldiers were singing this lament, uh, which, you know, I recited earlier, and they were crying. They were crying because they knew what was going on. Right. They were crying because they knew that he was being beat up in, you know, in, in the, the other room, um, and there was nothing they could do about it. Right. And it was just showing you the tragedy of war. Uh, this whole movie, as I mentioned, is an anti-war, uh, has an anti-war theme, and so... Because of that, uh, you have these somber pieces like that. And anytime you you see anything related to uh, the Civil War or death on the field or these soldiers, you hear that piece in the background. Right. Uh, I was yeah. That was one thing I, w- I was really, you know, listening to the score on its own. And and again this is this is why we we listen to the score on its own and we watch the film because sometimes listening to the score on its own you, you can't really get the understanding of what's going on so when that scene happened and the music started playing I was like okay now I understand why because it's again this is really my first time viewing this film well you know during the romantic uh period they had what they call program music and program music is very much kind of like what we see now they would write a um they would write a a piece of music and they would perform for the audience but it would come with a program and the program would tell you a story of the music um of course this is predates movies and whatnot but it was called program music and so uh you know i feel uh a little bit of that history when we watch movies because uh there's a story to be told, and the music tells a story. And I, with the with watching the film, you see that you see that, and you hear that. You hear the story but every time. Keep in mind, we just discussed it. The film was written around or filmed around the score. I, st- I still can't get over that. I think that's why it fits so well. Am I? Am I? If I got asked that right now, hey, we're going. I need you to make a score, but we're going to film around it. My first reaction would be, huh? <laughs> You're gonna do what now? How long do I have to make the music? Uh, three months. What? Uh, huh? <laughs> I'm serious. If I got if somebody come to me and told me that, I would be kind of like taken back. <laughs> but you know, I, I think that's why it worked well, though. 
it, it really probably good. is. Uh, um, again, you know, something you've never really heard of. Yeah. I was really surprised when you told me that. I was surprised when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the reason why we're talking about it now. <laughs> so then you've got, you know, the progression of them looking for this gold. So uh, they're all, you know, undermining each other to find this gold. You know, uh, they they ended up, uh, both, all three of them ended up in a... Um, a camp, you know, for POWs at one right. time. And then uh, only Blondie got the name of the grave in which the uh, gold was. had the name of the cemetery. Tuku had the name of the cemetery. So then Angel Eyes, uh, you know, uh, tortured Tuku to find the name of the cemetery. And then followed them. And then followed, well, he knew the name of the cemetery. So, right. yeah. they And it's funny how all their paths were always divergent, but then they ended up at the same place. Now, th- this is where it comes into my favorite scene of the, the film. The Mexican the standoff. The Mexican standoff in a big circle at the cemetery. That was awesome. So when he gets to the cemetery, they pay the play. Excuse me. They pay. The, <laughs> they no. pay to play. They, they, pay, <laughs> they play the ecstasy of gold. That was so that was awesome. such a climatic scene. That's when Tuco is looking for the gold. Now, the scene with them at the, the Mexican standoff, that was the trio. That's the trio. So you've got this ecstasy of gold piece playing, and Tuco's looking for the gold, and it's building, building, building. Even watching it in the movie, I got goosebumps. Well, got goosebumps, but also got sick. <laughs> yeah, it had a dizzy moment there. Well, it, it was, again, it was the, the time frame. It was 1966, so you've got these weird experimentations with not just the score, but with the camera movement. So the camera's just steadily spinning, spinning and spinning. Like spinning. he's running. Right, and it's supposed to signify what Tuco is going through. And seeing. And the whole time I'm watching it, I'm going, I'm getting sick to my stomach right now. And then there's close-ups of his face and his eyes darting here and And the there. music's building and building. <laughs> and the music was fantastic, and it works well, but at the same time, I'm just going okay can you and i actually said this out loud i don't remember i said can you find it already that's what you said <laughs> and then i asked him i said can you imagine this in the imax oh god i would throw <laughs> up i would seriously throw up if this watch this it was in a very dizzying scene but so the xc is you know they he, he's looking for this gold so you can see that he's just deranged because he wants money he's so greedy well tuco's deranged anyway well. so <laughs> which is why he's the ugly I told you he reminds me of a roach. You can't kill him. He just keeps up and he keeps <laughs> running away. So then it, it then it turns into the um, the track, the trio, and that's the trio of the men standing there in the Mexican standoff, and it worked so well. It I, built that was an tension. awesome scene. It built tension. It did what it was supposed to do. Um, it was well balanced. There was uh, no voices that were counteracting each other. It no. was well blended, and uh, on top of the you know Leon's film style, uh, it I mean it just helped the scene immensely build that tension that okay something's going to be happen now what's going to happen and you you're trying to guess what's going to happen in here um, and how you know how it's going to end. It was just wonderful. See, I, I had never heard of uh, Sergio Leone until there was a um, there was an interview Tommy Lee Jones did about Marco Beltrami, one of my favorite composers. Um, it was the first time Tommy Lee Jones had worked with Marco, and Marco started working on music. And he, Marco was a huge fan of Ennio Morricone, and Tommy Lee Jones told him one time, he said, "Isn't Sergio Leone dead?" And Marco was like, "Yeah." He goes, 
yeah, let's let's try something else. <laughs> oh my goodness! And I, I thought that was that was kind of I was like, who who's Sergio Leone? So I looked it up, and that was like my first real introduction into spaghetti westerns. And I was like, oh okay, so he did the Good and Bad and Ugly. I did not know how many other films he had done, and before then. Well, you know, I read um, that. After he made this film, he wanted Eastwood to come back for the next one that he was writing. And he personally flew. It was uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, right? I think so. Uh, he personally flew to America to give the script to Eastwood. And Eastwood's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be in your movie. And so then that kind of made him angry. Yeah, that's when Leone... And so the, in the 80s, he had some not-so-nice things to say about Eastwood. That's when he did Once Upon a Time, Upon a Time in America. In America, yes. And so uh, he compared Eastwood to marble. He said his acting is like marble. <laughs> and I think if I remember correctly, he said that Robert De Niro was a better actor than Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you know, I, I can't say that. I, uh, acting ability, I, I say they're pretty equal. I mean, they're... But as you said, the marble you know, statement, I, I, watching him in the film, I'm like, you know what? He is kind of stiff in this movie. Well, it's not that he's stiff. I guess he's no inspiration, or you can't mold him to do what you want him to do in the Maybe. film, you know? Maybe. But, I mean, he just, I guess Eastwood had such a distaste for Leone and Leone's meticulous ways. He just, he got fed up. He said, no, I'm not doing this Which again. may be why Eastwood is the way he is about directing now. Because, I mean, I know from a, a insider's uh, point of view, from what I've heard, Eastwood is a, you know, pretty much one to two take director. Yeah. So, overall... I, again, the score was amazing. It worked very well with, with the film. So, of course, like always, whenever we watch the film, we base it off of three different criteria. Does it work for the film? Best parts of the film? And what could have been done better? Now, does it work for the film? Absolutely. Because the film was <laughs> exactly. made for the music. This, this is one one case where it's a definite yes. Yes, it is. It works because it was filmed around the score. And I always so, yeah. say that I try to picture a different score in my mind when I, you know, watch a movie. In this instance, I really couldn't. But it may be because the movie is so iconic that it has made me biased towards it. That You know, because I like it so much. That could possibly be it. But I, I don't think so. I think the, mu the music was done so well that it, um, it added a tremendous amount of... Uh, feeling to the movie it added a tremendous amount of action to the movie and it did what it was supposed to do now you're saying it may be you may be coming from a biased point of view okay since i stated several times this was my first viewing of the film it absolutely works for the film i mean there's no way around it 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 fits every feeling it showcases not really showcases it it Builds upon the emotion of every scene that it comes into contact with. And, and so, yes, it definitely works for the film. Now, as I stated earlier, the, I kind of ruined it already. The best part of the film for me was the Mexican standoff at the end. I loved that. I loved the music. I loved the scene. I loved the imagery. It Everything just clicked right then and there. I like that scene, but to me, the best part, score-wise, uh, was Death of the Soldier. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm big into poetry. I love poetry. 
and I like the fact that they were singing the somber song. Um, put me back into a lot of the po- Civil War poetry that I have read in my youth. Um, so I, I really liked that part of the movie. But score, uh, you know, score bearing wise, my favorite part of the movie is when Tuca was taking a bath. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> That's without the score. <laughs> I, I could have done without seeing Tuco's rear end. It though. wasn't his rear end. It was the fact that he was playing in the water like a kid. He's just, you know, <laughs> do, 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 you know. Yeah, that that was pretty funny because he's just like. And then who takes his gun to the bath? But Tuco. Exactly. I, I called that. I was like, oh, he's gonna have a gun in there. And it, oh, there we go. Yeah. So <laughs> you know that was my favorite favorite part of the movie, uh, comic wise. But my favorite part for the score was the death of the soldier. Now, what could have been been done better? Nothing. <laughs> That's easy. As she says, matter very matter of factly. Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) It's true. Truthfully, there's nothing that could have been done better with the score because, again, we can't state this enough. The film was made around the score, so, of course, it's going to fit perfectly, and there's nothing that could have been done better. And I I was even imagining what it would be like if there was a remake to this film. Now, you know, a different cast and everything else, but the say there was like a big high-profile, you know, budget, big high-profile cast – the one thing that would have to stay, though, is the score. The score would have had to stay in the film. I think that if they would have redone it and they would have put a different score in it, it wouldn't be as good. It, it would not work. <laughs> I don't think it would be as good. It would not work at all. It wouldn't. I, It'd be I, one of those remakes you're like, oh, this is kind of bad. Well, it, not really. I wouldn't say that's it's kind of bad. I would say it doesn't have the same feel as the original. But, you know, like, for example, Clash of the Titans is one of my favorite movies, the old one. And I was so excited about the remake. And I love the score to the remake. It is a wonderful score. But the movie itself is not so good. I don't like it that much. Maybe we need Um, to cover that. We will. I think so. I want to put it on our list. Um, But, you know, I I think that in this instance, a remake would not, it would not be... um, respecting the film and respecting the place that this film has in history no i don't think so either this is why i don't i don't i i feel that it should not happen i was just trying to think about if there ever was a remake i i could not picture it with a different score yeah i cannot picture the original with a different score so you know in closing the score listening to it was fantastic i mean other than my few little quips about certain tracks but which you know, it's understood watching the film, just listening to it on its own, it, it kind of loses a little bit, just, you know, listening-wise. I, I thought it was fantastic, especially this is, since this is my first time listening and watching the film. I loved it. I, I And loved the score it. can stand on its own. It I mean, can. if you just listen to the score itself without watching the movie, you can, you can figure out that, okay, this has happened in the West. You can figure out, okay, there must have been fighting involved because you hear those hits that were symbolic of gunshots um i mean there's you've got the military drums in there uh that worked that worked (laughs) yes the snares that worked and you know which i forgot to mention earlier the timpanis he used the timpanis so nicely i just those hits at the end with the timpanis was just amazing there's only one other composer that I know of that loves timpanis like that, and that is John Williams. I loved, I love the timpani myself. I, I do too. I, I love creating a score. Just about every time I make a score, I use a timpani in there somewhere. 
Yeah. I, I mean, it. I have to. It's one yeah. of my favorite percussion instruments, I think. So in closing, I I have to say I love the score. Leslie obviously loves the score. Yes, so, I do. Yeah, definitely seek this out. Try to find it on Spotify if you can. Um, if you haven't watched a movie, watch the movie. Uh, get an appreciation of um, Old West. I mean, it's just very characteristic spaghetti western, um, and it's a good movie. Now, it really be is. prepared that it's over two hours long. And <laughs> we were not prepared last night. We had I to forgot watch it. that it was that long. <laughs> <laughs> but be prepared to sit there for a little over two hours when you watch the movie, um, and then find the score. Exactly. Yeah, Listen find the sp- find the score definitely. So. If you want to, please find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at Measuring the Score. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I believe Twitter, I've changed the handle to at Measure the Score. Uh, you can also send us an email, measuringthescore at gmail.com. Also, please leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can, just about what, you know, generalization of what you think about the score. If you have any requests please feel free to let us know if you are a composer who has a score or a film that you want us to talk about on here please let us know we would love to hear from you guys we have a couple of requests for season two already that's kind of rolling in um it's going to be great so guys please you know reach out to us we'd love to hear from you so for measuring the score i'm chris lott and i'm leslie lott thanks for listening